Welcome to Fronteras, a program that explores issues at the border and beyond through the lens of arts, culture, and history. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. A traveling exhibit highlights the anti-Mexican violence that some experts say claimed the lives of up to 5,000 people in Texas in the early 20th century. It was known as the Matanza, the Massacre. Life and Death on the Border, 1910 to 1920, was originally produced by the public history project Refusing to Forget, a group of historians that's on a mission to share this history of state-sanctioned violence. The exhibit was displayed in 2016 at the state's history museum, the Bullock Texas State History Museum in Austin. The COVID pandemic delayed plans to take it on the road. Life and Death on the Border traveled to McAllen in early 2023 and is on display at Our Lady of the Lake University in San Antonio through March. It consists of over a dozen panels that feature historic photos, documents, newspaper clippings, and artifacts that detail how and why the state sanctioned violence against its ethnic Mexican residents and how they fought back. Our guides today are Dr. Christopher Carmona, a visiting associate professor of comparative Mexican-American studies and English at Our Lady of the Lake and a member of Refusing to Forget. We also talk to Dr. Valerie Martinez, an associate professor of history at OLU. Carmona explains why the exhibit was called Life and Death on the Border. The title came about, we wanted to make sure it had life first, because it's not just about the death of these people, but the people who lived during these times, and the resilience of the community. And so we're looking at this particular time period as a huge shift from having this lands, which were traditionally Mexican-American run for over 300 years, to having their lands violently taken from them um, in the early 20th century over these 10 years here. And so you see during this time particularly the loss of lands from Mexican-American families to Anglo corporations, Anglo ranchers, literally in the hundreds of thousands of acres. And most of that was done through violence. The first panel dates to 1915. It's a view from above of rows of soldiers marching down the main street of a border town. Carmona describes it further. Yes, this is downtown Brownsville. This is when the army was brought in to deal with what they called the troubles on the borders. And so this is them marching into town. The U.S. Army got involved because of a lot of the activities that were happening during this time, during the Matanza, deaths of um, basically a lot of the citizens. And so the Army was called in because they believed it might have been spillover from the Mexican Revolution. But when they got here, they found the exact opposite. There's several reports from Army officers condemning the Texas Rangers for a lot of the violence. Another panel marks the impact railroads had in growing the state's economy. Valerie Martinez says the railroads connected the rest of the world to the border and also drove out native Mexican populations. We're looking at the transportation of new goods. We're looking at an increased market economy. So that's been kind of the traditional narrative of the railroad. But what we see here is that uh, Refusing to Forget has been able to contextualize the railroad in a very specific way that highlights how not only is the railroad, yes, increasing um, transportation and, again, spurring economic development, but it's also bringing these Anglo settlers into these spaces that were traditionally uh, predominantly Mexican 
and Mexican-American, right? And as these Anglo settlers are coming in, they're bringing in those ideas of racial superiority. They're bringing uh, their discriminatory policies. And this is going to have a heavy impact on these communities because now they are becoming racialized, right? They're becoming racialized by these Anglo settlers, again, coming into their spaces. So I really appreciate how RTF was able to revisit the narrative of the railroad and challenge this laudatory kind of praise of all this great things that the railroad is doing. I mean, it's not, it, it is spurring economic development, but it's also doing ways of changing the social and cultural interactions between the community members of the, those who are present and then those incoming. The railroads were also vital to agriculture in the state. Another panel shows a field of cabbage and other greens, and in the backdrop are a line of several dozen well-dressed, suited white men and women. The picture is captioned, Prospective Farmers in South Texas, circa 1900. Christopher Carmona says agriculture was the major push behind the Matanza. In 1905, the, the, the Rio Grande Land and Irrigation Company was awarded a grant to what we now call terraform these lands in South Texas from ranching to agriculture. Because at this time in the early 20th century, the big economic boom was agriculture. And so they're, they're capitalizing on these lands, or trying to, but uh, when these corporations like the, the Rio Grande Land and Irrigation Company tries to buy these lands from these Mexican families who've had them for over 300 years, their answer is obviously no. So they go back to the governor, and the governor basically gives them what was now considered a pre-pardon and tells them they can use the Texas Ranger Force to do what is necessary, and there will not be any prosecutions. And so this is a push from various different ways. Violence is one of them, but also they did unscrupulous tax records and things of this nature to take these lands from these Mexican-American families that were using were primarily ranching lands and transform them into agriculture. And so one of the major things is um, if you go through the Rio Grande Valley, there's a massive canal system. This is how they did it. And so this is what they were really looking at is not necessarily much the land as it was access to the water rights and the water to change these lands and make them viable for this. This economic shift um, is not really talked about ever, um, but this is what really led to a lot of the deaths here at the hand of Texas Rangers and others. One panel shows a newspaper clipping from the Arizona Republican with the headline, Texas fire has spread. It is raging fiercely in the city of Mexico against all Americans. Next to it is a clipping from a Mexican newspaper, El Demócrata Fronterizo. The two newspapers offer different reactions to the lynching of Antonio Rodriguez. Rodriguez was a Mexican citizen broken out of jail and burned alive by a posse in 1910 in Rock Springs, Texas. He was charged with the shooting death of a white woman. Here's Christopher Carmona. Well, what's interesting of, of the lynching of Antonio Rodriguez was um, this was one of the only advertised or reported lynchings in an English language newspaper. It's kind of a complicated story because it's shifted so many times, like they always do. And Antonio Rodriguez had nothing to do with it. He was just a Mexican worker who was in the area, who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, most people think that lynchings are hangings, but 
Most of the time, they're done in different ways. But he was burnt at the stake by a group of people. And then, of course, that's the end of it, right? Antonio Rodriguez's execution without trial resulted in demonstrations in the U.S. and Mexico. The panel about this incident in Texas history clarifies the role journalists played in shaping public perception. We're walking through the exhibit Life and Death on the Border, 1910 to 1920, a traveling exhibit on display at San Antonio's Our Lady of the Lake University. When we come back, one panel in the display purposefully does not show the graphic photo of murdered ethnic Mexican victims. It's not re-victimizing by seeing these bodies of humans, right? People who had names, people who had families. But here, the gaze shifts to the actual perpetrators of that violence. Our conversation continues next. Stay tuned to Fronteras. Welcome back to Fronteras. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. Today, we're taking you through the panel exhibit, Life and Death on the Border, 1910 to 1920. It was originally shown in 2016 at the Bullock, Texas State History Museum in Austin. The exhibit, organized by the Public History Project, Refusing to Forget, exposes the state-sanctioned anti-Mexican violence that's not taught in public school Texas history courses. The Texas-Mexico border is heavily militarized today, a process that began over 100 years ago. One panel in this exhibit dates to 1914 and shows U.S. cavalry machine gun troops at Fort Brown in Brownsville. The men in the foreground are kneeling behind their machine guns, staring at some unknown target. Officers on horseback are immediately behind them. Similar to what Governor Greg Abbott has done in recent years, President Woodrow Wilson ordered over 100,000 state National Guardsmen to the border in 1916. Associate Professor of History at Our Lady of the Lake University, Valerie Martinez, says that was happening at a key point in Mexican history. Now, this is at the same time that the Mexican Revolution is taking place. So we see that as armed people are coming closer to the border, right, and others that are fleeing into the United States, several people actually fled here to San Antonio. So we see that this is another opportunity that the U.S. is taking to strategically place these armed men on the border. So this has not been the first time we see that this happened in the U.S.-Mexico War, right, where the U.S. strategically placing people in disputed territory, kind of poking at the bear, and then whenever the bear bit back, oh, now I'm supposed to be on the defensive. So it seems here that Wilson is also strategically placing these men here while increasing the security, quote, right, on the border. But we see that it's just going to increase the anti-Mexican violence. The bear bit back in 1915 in the form of a train derailing. A handwritten caption lies at the bottom of a photo of a derailed passenger train that reads, View of the wreck by Mexican Badits, a misspelling of Bandits. Train cars lie on their sides, perpendicular to the tracks. A lone soldier stands next to the wreck, resting his rifle on his right shoulder. In the foreground, it looks like survivors are sharing their account with the authorities. Here's Christopher Garmona, a member of Refusing to Forget and a visiting professor at Our Lady of the Lake. So yes, this is actually one of the most famous incidents that happened during Matanza, which is the Omito train wreck. So to kind of understand the context of this train wreck is um, during this time, there were people who resisted, who became local folk heroes at the time. 
So the term bandit was, is constantly used as obviously the, the way that they still use it today. And so this type of rhetoric helps to dehumanize these peoples. But this train wreck in particular was done by a group of men who, um, who basically were seditionists. And so they were trying to fight back against the Rangers, but also take back the Southwest from the U.S. at this point. Because what you have here during this time is no legal recourse for the people and so what ends up happening when you have no recourse is people turn to, to violence. They did have people on there, but they were transporting weapons and things of that nature as well. So they're trying to stop what they called the invasion, the border at this time. Another pair of corner panels displayed at a 90-degree angle collectively features a famous yet graphic photo of three men on horseback staring at the camera. On the ground are the crumpled corpses of three Mexicans tied to the end of their ropes. The panel is captioned, Texas Rangers at Las Norias Bandit Raid, October 8, 1915. However, these panels cut off the image before you see the corpses, so all you see are the men on horseback. Valerie Martinez explains why. For me, in terms of, again, public history, this is completely recasting the gaze. Right, so it's not re-traumatizing, right? It's not re-victimizing by seeing these bodies of humans, right? People who had names, people who had families, but here the gaze shifts to the actual perpetrators of that violence. So I very much appreciate that as a viewer, right? As somebody who's walking through the exhibit, and as a public historian of showing of how it is important that we recast this gaze. So here we're able to see the lens and shift our gaze to these men here who perpetrated this violence, right, who, who killed with impunity. Yeah, so a lot of people don't know about these photographs is that they were staged. This image in particular, usually the one that people show is the whole image with the bodies. The men that are also murdered in these photos, they, they basically staged these bodies to make the rangers look, I guess, bigger, more heroic. But, of course, to people who are looking at these uh, images, you realize a couple of things, especially if you see the one that has the bodies on them, is that they have no weapons or any sort of gear that would suggest that they were carrying weapons at all. But most people glance over that because, obviously, they just assume, because they're referred to as bandits, that they were doing something wrong. And so with this, when we cut them off, we just focus on the rangers. You get to see the way that they're just sitting on their horses, looking like they've just come back from a hunt, right? Two panels appear next to each other that appear to have no relationship. One shows a 1917 World War I recruitment poster for the U.S. government. It reads, no more men are needed for the watch on the Rhine, but 26,000 men are wanted to relieve the watch on the Rio Grande. The other panel is a handwritten account of the Porvenir Massacre of 1918, one of the most infamous massacres of the Matanza. Fifteen men and boys were massacred in a retribution killing in Porvenir, Texas. Valerie Martinez says ethnic Mexicans were often targeted by so-called loyalty rangers for not expressing loyalty to the U.S. And she says this targeting was tied to Porvenir. 
coupled right next to this panel of 1917 is the 1918 Porvenir massacre. And I think that is very, very strategic. And again, I appreciate that from those who curated this exhibit. They put these two together. So in the midst of us being here in this uber patriotic period, right, where if um, if anything, we have the creation of the Sedition and the Alien Act. So anything counter to this U.S. narrative of greatness is going to be challenged and you will be jailed. So here we have the moment of 1918 where people uh, were accused of raiding the Bright Ranch. But it turns out that when the Texas Rangers came in and when the military comes in, they are targeting the nearest community of Porvenir, who just were guilty of living next to this particular ranch, right? And you have the massacre of 15 men and children of boys, right? So I, I like how we're coupling this moment of World War One and later on World War Two, and showing the intense amount of racial animosity within these communities, this intense amount of anti-Mexican sentiment that is going along with the anti-immigrant sentiment of the early 20th century. The panel next to the Porvenir Massacre is one that shows the official State House portrait of José Tomás Canales. Christopher Carmona says the Porvenir Massacre spurred the 1919 state legislative hearings led by J.T. Canales, the only Mexican-American state representative at the time. And it became a huge story that they could not um, ignore the fact. And J.T. Canales had been trying to bring these hearings to the floor for a long time before this. But this is really the catalyst that led to that. And those hearings, which lasted uh, approximately about three or four weeks, led to over 200 people testifying to the atrocities that they had experienced at the hands of the rangers and others. It did lead to investigating and basically dismantling the Texas rangers as they existed at that time. The panels go on to explore the Juan Crow laws that enforced racial segregation of Mexican-Americans and their civil rights. Those restrictions spurred the creation of Latino civil rights movements and organizations that fought to advance the interests of Latinos in Texas, like the League of United Latin American Citizens. Carmona and Valerie Martinez say LULAC was part of the movement to force change via political action civil rights organizations needed to exist in a different way that led away from from violence to political action activism type of work which is why the one of the first you know meetings of LULAC happens in Harlingen Texas which is square in the Rio Grande Valley which eventually leads to the founding of LULAC which is the first Latino civil rights organization in this country And so all this is connected because they see the violence and then they see that they need representation. They need to have a voice. And so this is where the identity starts to form and, the, and why we need LULAC. I think part of this curation of including LULAC is also particularly important because here LULAC is, we know, a huge advocate for education, right? So if we see that education is this form of social mobility, this exhibit is part of continuing this legacy of educating our communities of bringing awareness to these topics, again, for social mobility. But it's not just, you know, to go up the ranks, but it's also to incorporate change within our communities to promote equity, right, to promote these new opportunities that were trampled throughout this whole early 20th century. So I think it's very important that they're including LULAC within the exhibit. 
The exhibit goes on to point out the artistic and literary contributions to the Latino civil rights movement, like the revolutionary 1958 book by Américo Paredes, with his pistol in his hand. So um, Américo Paredes was really the first person to write a really a book that was primarily in English that dealt with the Texas Rangers in a negative light, or the Texas Rangers as experienced by the Mexican-American community. And so with his pistol in his hands, uh, led to really um, a renaissance of this type of literature where Mexican-American stories and other things were starting to be highlighted. But um, this book in particular tells the story of Gregorio Cortez, which, you know, becomes a very popular corrido at the time about a man who stood up against injustice and even fought against the Texas Rangers. They were never able to capture him. And so he becomes this folk legend, right? And there's a lot of corridos that came out of this time. This is really where the corridos had their, their golden era. But, and, you know, during this time, there was a lot of these that really highlighted the histories of these peoples in a way that they could. This was really the first one that, with his pistol in his hand, that led to that kind of revolution. The exhibit's final panel is of the long-delayed historical marker that memorializes the Porvenir Massacre. The panel is entitled Refusing to Forget, which is also the name of the public history project dedicated to making sure the Matanza is never forgotten. Christopher Carmona, a member of Refusing to Forget, says history that is lost is repeated. The Walmart shooter in El Paso, this history is not past, the the famous line by um, Faulkner. This is a history that even right now, the Texas Ranger um, Museum in Waco and others, they're celebrating their 200th anniversary. But of course, um, as this is happening, we are also presenting the stories of the other sides of what they're trying to say. A lot of what they're promoting is the myth of what the Texas Rangers are or were. One of the, the lines on every time we try to get a quote from the Department of Public Safety about this, their line is that our Texas Rangers are not associated with the Texas Rangers of this era, which is in itself is an admission <laughs> of the crimes they committed. <laughs> But they try to distance themselves from this era. But the Texas Rangers were involved in the stopping of the desegregation movement in the 50s, the breaking up of protests in the 60s. So there's a lot of this history that is still connected. And this history goes into today when we look at what's going on in the border in these communities. The injustices of Uvalde, um, Uvalde is pretty close to a lot of this history and they're not willing to admit the mistakes that were made. You know, not going into that school for an hour and 15 minutes, I believe, where the active shooter guidelines say you have to have it resolved within 14 minutes. Texas Rangers were there. Department of Public Safety was there. And so these things are still fresh, and that was only two years ago. Valerie Martinez says the touring exhibit is just one way to tell these essential undertold chapters of Texas history. She says education in public schools is essential and offering Mexican-American studies as an elective is not enough. We continue to push to include this history within our K-12 system because this is U.S. history. We are being inclusive. We are not being unpatriotic. We're not being anti-American. We are trying to tell the truth. 
that's all we're trying to do. So we hope that folks continue and can come visit, right, to learn this material, but we are working to get this within the textbooks. We're working to have this course not just be an elective, but to actually be part of the core curriculum. But we're going to continue to push this within the legislature to continue to have this push for ethnic studies so people can learn their history and can learn from it and hopefully promote some type of healing within our communities. You need to confront this history, otherwise... We're just doomed to repeat it. Yeah. We've been talking to Dr. Valerie Martinez, an associate professor of history at Our Lady of the Lake University, and with Dr. Christopher Carmona, a visiting associate professor of comparative Mexican-American studies and English at Our Lady of the Lake. He's also a member of Refusing to Forget. The exhibit Life and Death on the Border, 1910-1920, is on display through March at the Sultanfuss Library at Our Lady of the Lake in San Antonio. The organizers are asking community members who may have artifacts relevant to the Matanza and to the Latino Civil Rights Movement to lend them to the exhibit. You can email Christopher Carmona or Valerie Martinez at Our Lady of the Lake University for more details. We'll put their contact information online at tpr.org. Fronteras is produced by Norma Martinez and Maria Navarro. Our executive producer is Dan Katz. Our editor is Fernando Ortiz, Jr. Charanga Cakewalk composed our theme music. Hear past episodes at tpr.org and on the Fronteras podcast. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio.